Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in and being a part of the way more and more people in our industry are getting the news and updates of what's going on in the industry. So we're honored and privileged to have you here. Killed the music so you can hear us a little bit better. But anyway, I want to say thank you so much. It is June 2nd. Excuse me, June 6th. How time does fly. Um, we're already in June. I mean, I just struggled to understand how time is moving out at such a warp speed. But it's good to have you be with us. We say that the date and uh, of the program at the beginning of it because many of you are downloading and listening to this program after the fact. So you're listening to the June 6, 2016 program. Again, this broadcast was created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we are the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Innovation Award. Very happy about that. We appreciate you joining us. Today's hot topic is on senseless regulation. If you're in this industry, you know a little bit about that. And our guest today, Bill Isaacs, Bill Isaac, no S in there, sorry about that. Bill Isaac was the former chairman of the FDIC and published a book on this topic of senseless government intervention is really what it is. We're going to be talking more about the book and the proper title at the, uh, the Hot Topic segment. Uh, I heard Bill speak recently at the American Bankers Association Real Estate Lending Conference. Bill was so compelling. Uh, Bill is senior me by a few years, and um, but is out and speaking and staying very active in uh, getting the voice his voice heard as he has a concern about where the country is heading as it relates to regulation, senseless involvement, senseless involvement of the regulation. You know what, I, I, I never forget Ronald Reagan's words, the nine scariest words in the English language is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Cracks me up when you read that. It's almost a little bit of what's going on in our – a little bit. It's really going on in our industry, and Bill is gonna, has got a book on it. We're going to be talking about that book, talking about how it relates to today and what's going on. He's been on the speaking circuit on national television, and it's a real honor to have Bill Isaac here with us. Folks, it is a real honor to welcome to our podcast Bill Isaac. Now, if you go to the website, it, you can go to his website, and it's williamisaac.com. And I just realized I better turn on his mic so he can join in in the discussion here a minute. But um, Bill's website is, uh, again, williamisaac.com. I encourage you to head out there, as you see right here on there. It's not showing him disrespect by using a name. He uses a, his first name, Bill, as uh, the William, Billy versus William on his website. So I'm for those who are very formal, say it's William. Well, he goes by Bill. And he is a great individual that I am so thrilled to get to know and listen to. The amount of wisdom this man has, the experiences he has. He has had an unparalleled career in the financial industry and public service spanning 50 years. He's a little bit older than I am, and he's out there, so it's fun to hear him say, good to see you, youngster, and that. And so he said, I'm just a pup, so I'm glad to hear that. And 65, turning 66 in August, it's so nice to hear someone say, I'm still young in the industry. He served as the chairman of the FDIC during the crisis of 1980. He published a book, Senseless Panic. 
that has received a lot of attention. If you go to his website, you'll see his TV interviews um, uh, that he's been on numerous times, the media coverage, and he continue, this is not only just a website, but it's a blog post. So he's putting up very important information that he wants you to share. I listened to him speak at the American Bankers Association Real Estate Lending Conference, and he was just as compelling. He held everyone. There wasn't one person that left the room, and it was just really good content, and I'm honored to have him here. So, Mr. Isaac, it's good to have you here, sir. <laughs> it's good to be here. I've been enjoying the show. Oh, good. Um, I'm actually sitting in Florida right now, and, it, and we have some sort of a tropical depression coming through, and so it's, it's very overcast and rainy. Well, we had it in here, as you know, just a, a few days ago or a, few, a short time ago, and so you get to enjoy what we've been uh, swimming through here, but we've got a gorgeous <laughs> day in central Texas, but normally it's just a flip-flop. You've got gorgeous weather out there, but I really – you talk about cloudy weather. You talk about what you have seen in the financial services over your 50-year career. And the, first of all, let's do get our listeners familiar with Andy Shell has been tracking you for decades, and uh, but uh, some of our listeners may not be aware of you. So let's talk. Just give a real brief background of how you, from the time out of college, you have a law degree, you have a background. Let's talk about that and how you got to the point or chairman of the FDIC. Quite a prestigious position. Well, I I, I uh, am from Bryan, Ohio. It's a small town in northwest Ohio. Not too many people probably have heard of it, but probably have some of its products, such as Etch-a-Sketch and uh, and uh, Spangler Candy Company with the Dum Dum Suckers. Anyway, that's where I came from. I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, for undergraduate, and I went to the Ohio State University for law school. My first position in the real world was with Folland Lardner, a uh, law firm in Milwaukee. It's one of the largest firms in the country today, probably certainly in the top ten uh, in terms of size in, in uh, the U.S. today. That was my first position, and that's where I got introduced to banking. I wanted to be a labor lawyer, and they asked me to be a banking lawyer, so I did. Um, and then after being there five years, I left, and I went to First Kentucky National Corporation, the largest banking company in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where I was vice president, general counsel, and secretary. And it was from there that I was appointed to the FDIC board by Jimmy Carter uh, four years later. So I was uh, 33 when he appointed me. I was 34 wow. by the time I took office. And uh, I was named to the three-member. Uh, it was three members at the time. It's five members now. Three-member FDIC board. It was bipartisan. And so I was appointed to the Republican seat on the FDIC board, and I was named chairman by Ronald Reagan when he was elected in 1981, uh, and I served until the end of 1985. So altogether, I was on the board about eight years under two different presidents, and the 1980s, as you, as you, as everybody I think knows was a very, very difficult, turbulent time in in the uh, financial world in particular. But we were hit with uh, very severe economic conditions, conditions that, that, that put what happened in 2008, 2009, uh, to, uh, in, to put it in perspective, this was far worse. What, what happened in the 1980s was far worse and had right. far more potential to do harm 
than anything that happened in 2008, 2009. Not very many people realize that today, but these were very, very severe conditions in 2000, in, in the 1980s, uh, and uh, we almost lost control of the system, but we didn't. And uh, it's very important to know that. So I'll stop there what and let you. You know, that's good. Well, I want to get Andy. I want to get Andy Shell on here because he lived through some of that with you and some of that. But if you could comment about that crisis, Andy, and then relate to what our most recent crisis, then we're going to get Joe and Alice are going to get you involved here just shortly. But I want to get into that perspective and putting it in perspective from then to the day. Andy? Well, just real quick, Dave, thanks for, for letting me join in. Well, I was in the, I was in a depository in, in the Dallas area throughout the 80s. And in, in Texas specifically, during that time, if you think about Texas as having maybe five major metropolitan areas and another like Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and then probably another 50 cities that are of some, some size on the map, it's more than just a little bitty dot, there were 274 depositories off the top of my head that failed during that time frame in Texas. So there were places where there was by a gas way, station, by a, the bank, way, a bank, and a bank. By the way, including... Eight, uh, nine out of the ten largest Texas banks failed. Yeah, that's the inner first. Yeah, First Republic. Um, uh, exactly, Bill. So there would be a bank and a and on a, each in a corner, a, a bank, a bank, a bank, and a gas station. And by the end of the 80s, it was a gas station, gas station, gas station, gas station, because every single bank, every single drive-in branch uh, failed. It was it was phenomenal. If you drove through downtown Dallas, where there used to be these big, big, tall buildings, 50, 70-story buildings that were bank buildings. By the end, there was just the one that was North Carolina National Bank, became Nations Bank, became Bank of America. But it's it's hard to look back, and, and you know, as I, as I think about it now, it's just, it was unsettling, it was unnerving, it was catastrophic. You didn't know how deep the hole was. Examiners would come in and look at a bank's condition and think it was going to be you know, X amount of loss, and, and a year later it was ten times that. The real estate crash that hit and the impact it had on the industry was just unfathomable and, like Bill said, substantially worse than what we just endured. So, Bill, it's you want to comment on that, that more? Well, yeah, I, it's hard I, to imagine it's that, worse than that, than what we went through. I, I, I think that, 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 that... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I think that, that what's what's important to know is, first of all, that we had a severe inflation problem in the 1970s. And so when Paul Volcker became chairman of the Fed in, in 1978, with the instructions from Jimmy Carter, we've got to get rid of inflation. It was out of control. Uh, we were sort of like a third-world country in terms of what was happening with inflation. And so Paul Volcker came in and raised the prime rate from somewhere around 7 or 8% to 21.5%, and that, that seems unfathomable. Uh, here, we're, we, you know, we're, we've got prime rate at what today, 3 or 2? I mean, it's, a, it's very, very low, and throughout most of my lifetime, it was somewhere around this 5 or 6% range. Paul Volcker raised the prime interest rate to 21.5%, and it stayed there until we broke the back of inflation. That caused a depression, a literal depression, in the in the agricultural sector, that the bottom dropped out uh, completely in agriculture. We had a um, a collapse of the energy sector, and so severe 
that the FDIC became the largest owner of oil rigs in the world. Wow. From taking them over from failed banks that had financed them. Um, And then we had a collapse in the real estate sector. And finally, and most well, and, and of course, the SNL industry went down with that. The, the entire SNL industry was basically wiped out. And then, on top of all that, our major money center banks, the banks in New York and Chicago and so forth, they were loaded completely to the gills with loans to lesser developed countries. They made a lot of third world loans, and those loans were all at risk. Uh, our biggest, one of our biggest fears, despite all these other challenges, one of our biggest fears was that the third world countries, Brazil, Argentina, and so forth, would renounce their debts, in which case all of our money center banks, we would be forced to nationalize them. They couldn't survive on their own if that happened. And so we had a standby plan in place to nationalize our major banks in the U.S. if need be. That's how severe the problems were. And altogether, in the 1980s, we had approximately 3,000 banks and SNLs fail, including many of the largest in the country. We've mentioned nine out of the ten largest banks in Texas. Seattle First, the largest bank in the Northwest. Uh, Southeast Bank Corp., the largest bank in the Southeast. Bank of New England, the largest bank in the Northeast. Continental Illinois, the sixth largest bank in the country. All of these major institutions throughout the country failed. Um, and and that's what we were facing during that period. It was a sev- far more severe crisis than we were faced with in 2007, 2008, 2009. Far more severe. I'd like to think it I was think handled a lot better. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to, to think say, it was like, handled a lot better, and, and, and that's why I wrote the book, Senseless Panic. It was about how poorly the crisis was handled in 2008, 2009, how we could have done so much better. Why is it that the current pain is always more than the historical pain? I, I think we put more credence in it, but it's really interesting to put that in perspective. And it wasn't until you and I were talking that really, and when I heard you speak, that really brought that to the forefront. And so then you look at the mistakes that were – there were mistakes made in the 80s financial crisis, but far less than what were made in this most recent crisis. That's what prompted you to re- read the book. Bring us forward to that book. There's so much we, – we could do all several programs just on the banking crisis – of the 80s and what we all went through. And uh, I was in Seattle. I watched Seattle first fail. I looked at that and what kind of panic. But let's go to why you wrote the book and the premise of that book. And it's a, one of those books that I really encourage our listeners to pick up and read. Senseless Panic. You can get it on Amazon. You can go to the website and order it. But give us the backdrop of that and where, where that book has taken you and what you're doing now today. Well, I I had moved on with my life following leaving the FDIC. I started my own my own firm to consult with financial institutions and try to help them deal better with their their issues and problems. Uh, and and I've been doing that uh, since then. And and I have commented on on the public policy issues over the years, but I was relatively quiet until I watched the crisis in 2008 develop and 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 get out of control 
and and they the government proposed a terrible piece of legislation called TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, and they 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 proposed to pass that law, and what that law would have done was taken seven hundred billion dollars of our money and give it to the largest banks in the United States and 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 elsewhere. We, the money could could also go to foreign banks to try to buy from them their troubled assets. The name of the program, Troubled Asset Relief Program, and there was no way that program was going to be anything but a waste of taxpayer money, our money. It was not going to fix the banking system. You can't fix it a $15 trillion system by buying $700 billion of bad loans. And then what would you do with them? What would the government do with $700 billion of bad loans other than let them lie in a warehouse floor somewhere collecting dust and losing money? Uh, It was not a fix. I I argued against it. I wrote a piece that appeared in the Washington Post at the same time Congress was was considering TARP. And And the title of the article was, There's a Better Way Than TARP. And so I explained in the article what I thought were better solutions than throwing away $700 billion of taxpayer money. And my, that it was published on a Saturday in September of 2008, and my phone began to ring off the hook with members <laughs> of Congress calling me saying, you've got to come to Washington and help us. Um, I rejected it and rejected it, and finally I, I said to one member of Congress, I I will. Uh, I'll talk to my wife when she gets home, and I'll see what she says because I planned a family weekend. <clears throat> so anyway, she came home, and I, I told her what was going on. She said, "You have to go." I said, "Why?" She said, "Because you care. You care about the country. You care about the banking system. So go and see if you can help fix it." And I did, and I spent a week in in Washington and, and met with hundreds of members of Congress. I couldn't believe the the reception I got. It was so. It was so good, and the first vote they took on the TARP legislation in the House was defeated, um, and I was so thrilled that they turned down that terrible legislation. Of course, it did ultimately pass, and uh, and 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 it didn't do anything to fix the, the system. Uh, the Dow, when they when they passed that legislation, the Dow was at ten thousand eight hundred, and over the next few months after after TARP was passed, over the next few months. Uh, the Dow fell to a little over 6,000, from, from almost 11,000 down to about 6,000. So it, it clearly did not resolve the problems, did not resolve the crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've sort of bumbled our way since then. We haven't fixed it. And that's what caused me to write the book, I, uh, Senseless Panic. This was a totally senseless panic. The crisis was mishandled. Uh, the solution to the crisis was mishandled. And the Dodd-Frank law that was passed um, following the crisis was mishandled, a terrible law. And, and, we, and our economy and our country have been struggling since, and we've got to find a way out of this. And that's basically how I spend a lot of my time now, trying to, trying to talk to people about how we fix what's wrong with our country. I appreciate your passion, and I appreciate your purpose, and I'm grateful that you are still engaged in the process of trying to get a voice out there. One of the things in our, when we talked pre, previous to the broadcast, you ta- commented about Senator Dodd, and I had the privilege of talking to him, of all places, at the Dulles Airport while waiting in line for our flights. We spent quite a bit of time visiting, 
and you shared shed some light on something that was very interesting. I'd like to have you share with our radio audience what Dodd Frank, what the, the dot part of the Dodd Frank was originally proposed, was actually something that was pretty decent. So if you could, or it was sensible. I don't know if it's decent. What, what's the, how would you characterize it? If you shared that story with our audience. Well, Senator Dodd was was uh, really a, a voice of reason throughout much of this, and and I have had a great deal of admiration. He proposed the Dodd bill, and the Dodd what the Dodd bill would have done, which which was exactly what needed to be done. Our regulatory system was broken; it remains broken. It is not a good regulatory system. There have been three major banking crises in my in my career the 72 
Thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks, Bill. I'm just fascinated. I can't take notes uh, quickly enough, you know, because I, I actually started as a processor in the early 80s, so I do remember the 21.5% interest rate and everybody being happy when they got an arm at 11%. Um, so, um, but my, my question then goes back to what you were just talking about, you know, and how do we fix what, what's wrong? So we're, we're already here. Um, I think a lot of people would agree with you that this, you know, bill, the Dodd-Frank ended up being just a lot of regulation to make us all do stuff, but didn't really fundamentally get at the core of the problem. So what are some of the things that we should be doing next? Well, if I, if I were the president or if I were advising the president, um, I would say... Could you start say... running now? We're looking for somebody. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little, little late for that. <laughs> but but um, I, I think that I think that um, uh, what what one thing that I would advise the new president to do is to put together new legislation that really makes sense, not 2,500 pages long. By the way, the Dodd Frank Law is 2,500 pages long. And it spawned at least 25,000 pages of new regulations, and it doesn't really fix anything. Um, it's just it's just gobbledygook. It really is. And and uh, so I think what I would advise the new president is I would come up with a reform law that focuses primarily on regulatory reform, so that we get regulation of, of banking institutions and financial institutions. We get that right, and then. Uh, and, and it needs to be independent, as as as, uh, as uh, Senator Dodd suggested. It needs to be an independent of politics. Uh, we need to get that right. And then, um, once regu- regulators are doing their job properly, which they already they already had all the authority they needed to do everything that should have been done, but they didn't do it. So once we get once we get the regulatory system right. Um, there's not much else that needs to be done. We might need a law here or there to to deal with some issue, but we basically need to get the the regulatory system right. So if I were advising the new president, I'd say let's revive Senator Dodd's law and let's put that on the table with perhaps some other reforms here and there. Um, and, uh, And then let's repeal Dodd-Frank as that as as that new law passes, we'll we'll repeal the Dodd Frank law, and and let that new regulatory authority start uh, from scratch and do what really needs to be done to get the banking system regulated properly and functioning properly. Uh, so that's what I would do. Um, it's 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 pretty simple, really. We need to do what we know how to do. We know how to regulate banks properly. We just haven't done it because we haven't had the political will to do it, and that is partly and importantly a a product of not having the proper structure for our regulatory agencies and the proper independence. Well, I tell you, I think that makes sense. Let's go over to Joe Farr. Joe? Yeah. uh, Bill, you're describing an independent agency that sounds very similar to what the CFPB is right now. And, And, you know, that's being met with a lot of resistance given how independent it is what do you think is going to happen there and what what would you recommend would you recommend any changes in that regard by the cfpb you mean the consumer 
financial financial protection uh, bureau yeah protection bureau and yeah. and i am not somebody who is a, strongly opposed to that agency i'm not opposed to it at all i i i mean that's heresy among bankers <laughs> yeah. like almost all bankers can tell you they hate that agency um but but well, i think people I, hang up on the podcast right now <laughs> well stay 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 on the podcast long enough to hear me out and then and then and then you'll make up your mind uh but i i don't think the problem was creating a new agency to be focused on consumer compliance that was already going on among the banking agencies but it was sort of a conflict for them to to have to, you know are you supposed to protect the banks and have the banking system working right or are you supposed to be taking care of consumers and it, it was very confusing and difficult for bank regulators to sort that out and i didn't have a problem with putting that in an in an independent agency and make it clear what the banking agency should be concerned about now one of the things we did wrong is we kept the banking agencies involved in this while we created a new agency to be involved in it. See, I, I think one mistake we made is we should have taken the banking agencies out of consumer compliance and and completely instead of having them do it and the CFPB do it. Uh, secondly, I believe the CFPB is not structured properly. It, it's, it's, it has, it's headed by a single individual, not a, not a board, um, I believe it should have been a board of directors of the CFPB. I believe it should have been a bipartisan board, not a single individual appointed by a president from a particular party. I think it should have been a bipartisan board. I think it should have been independent, but it should have gotten its funding from Congress, not from the Federal Reserve. So a lot of things were wrong with the structure of the CFPB and how they went about it, and those are easily fixed. Um, but having the banking agencies focus their attention or the new banking commission focusing its attention on banking and making sure that's going right, I think that's, I think that's, a, that's, a, 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 that's a good way to go. And having a new CFPB focused on whatever the consumer issues are and have that be their mission, I think that's a good way to go. Um, and and I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, so I, I think that that it could have worked. I think neither one of them is structured properly, and uh, it's all in the structure. If you don't get the structure right, if you don't get the governance right, you're not going to get anything right, and that's where we are. Boy, I tell you, there's a lot of wisdom there, a lot of experience, and we need to get this voice inside of the next camp or whoever's going to be in the White House. So, yeah, it's too late for you to run, but we definitely can get your voice inserted in there. We'll have to do that. Um, got some bunch of ideas that are running through my mind of what we can do to get your wisdom and experience brought to everyone's attention. But I, first of all, what I want everyone to do is go out and download the book Senseless Panic. Read it. Pay attention to it. Forward it on to one of your uh, local legislators that are going to D.C. and that are in D.C. representing you. I think this wisdom needs to be there. Bill is available to talk at conferences, to speak at your company, to come on and get. We need his voice out there for so many reasons that you've already heard here. We're out of time. We're after beyond out of time. We went over a little bit, but it is well worth it to have you here with us, Bill. I want to say thank you. I also want to say thank you to Alice, Andy, Joe, uh, participating in the discussion here. Appreciate you. Wish you all the best for in the future, and we want to make sure we're going to do what we can to get your voice out there and heard and hopefully sitting at the table for to fix with wisdom in this time, correctly fix 
the issues that are still before us. Thank you well, so th- much thank for being you. a part of it, and wish really great having th- you. Thank, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate uh, talking with uh, all of you and, and your listeners. Yeah, it's really been a real been an honor. Next week, folks, we've got Mitch Kiner coming on along with his sons. Uh, the, you know, you heard that old show, Father and Sons. Well, that's what we've got going on. Mitch Kiner and his three boys are going to be coming on and be talking. It's just before Father's Day, so I thought it'd be a way to honor uh, or talk about Father's Day, but also talk about leadership, leadership in the home, leadership as fathers, leadership within the industry. His boys have gone on and continued to follow Mitch's legacy and providing wisdom and out there. So we're really honored to have Mitch Kiner joining us next week on the podcast along with his the father and son <laughs> that whole program i think it was ed mcmurray we got andy would know who it was that did that ed mcmurray i think it was was it not andy show but anyway yeah um, that's right it was great my three sons ed yeah, McMurray. Was, yeah yeah I, I i remember that program like yesterday and uh so we're gonna have mitch and his sons on next week in advance of father's day Good to have you with us. Appreciate you being a part of the podcast. The most important thing you can do is tell others about the podcast so that people know what we're doing, and this is a way of getting information out. Anyone who comes in and has been a part of this podcast gets cooked on it. They go, it's really helpful, and we appreciate your support. The best way you can support us is tell others about it. Have a great week, everybody. Look forward to having you back where we will talk to father and son, Mitch Kiter, and his three sons. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great week, everybody. This has been Lincoln on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening.